When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on the How To Money podcast today. Thanks, Kate. Great to be with you. Before we dive into what I hope is going to be a very interesting episode today, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you ended up working in the financial services industry. Uh, Well, that's a really good question, Kate. I guess very quickly, uh, I was interested in gardening and started to start a nursery. Mm. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I need some business acumen. And when I was very, very young, I so I think this is in high school, I took a, a an elective that was uh, economics, I think, or accounting. I think it was accounting, actually, because I thought, oh, I'm going to need this if I want to start my own business. And from there, that's where I kind of fell in love with numbers to some degree. That sounds really sad, but and so then I my natural course was to then study commerce at uni and then get into chartered accounting, which I did for a number of years, but it's probably too dry. <laughs> uh, that's probably no surprise to anyone. But I've always had a passion for independent financial advice, even back in the late nineties when it just really wasn't around. It was around in a different format for corporates. So if you had a large corporate that needed, that had money to invest, they could go and hire what was called an asset consultant. And the asset consultant would say, look, put some in shares, put some in property, put some in cash, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, wouldn't that be great at a retail level where you could go to somebody that was completely independent and they would just sort of control the traffic, if you like, and say, look, put some over there, put some over here. But they were completely independent and no vested interest. Mm. And at the time when I was thinking about that, it didn't exist in the marketplace. In 2002, I thought it was time to sort of jump ship from chartered accounting and go my own way. And I started in the mortgage broking industry, mainly because I wanted to have the challenge of building a business rather than necessarily becoming a mortgage broker. But it was an up and coming industry. And I kind of fell into it because it was a great opportunity then to start talking to clients 
I mean, a mortgage is typically the first major financial transactions a young person does. Mm. And, you know, if they do it well, and a lot don't, I didn't personally when I took out my first mortgage. But if they do do it well and they do get some really good advice and they follow that advice, you know, good decisions compound, just like bad decisions compound. And you can end up going in completely different directions, positive one, positive and one negative, depending on whether you get that first transaction, that first property purchase, correct? Mm. So I kind of fell into it from that perspective, even though I had that sort of background passion for independent advice and then realized, hey, look, there's a great wider opportunity here in the marketplace to really help people from a completely independent standpoint and to sort of help them understand how important some of these decisions they're making. And so that was in 2002, nearly 18 years ago. And uh, I'm sitting here today thinking, where did, where did, where did that 18 years go? <laughs> But it's been a, a long but very enjoyable road and and I don't think, you know, sometimes you, you go into certain industries and jobs and businesses with rose-coloured glasses thinking it's going to be better than what it actually is. Well, looking back in 18, after 18 years now, I think it's just as good if not better in terms of the ability to really help people. And uh, if you can help people with that first transaction, as I said, and absolutely nail it, it changes the rest of their life, the trajectory of the rest of their life versus if you completely muck it up, it takes many years to kind of recover from a poor decision. So yeah, it's great scope. Yeah, and I absolutely see that as sometimes young people will just jump into one of the the hot stocks that are going on because they haven't learned about investing. They just get really excited. They get completely burnt on their first investment or gamble and then they just don't look at it again for 10 years and they miss out on so much opportunity to grow their wealth over the long term. Yeah, that's the problem is that when people make an investment, it doesn't work out. They assume the asset class is broken. Mm. You know, I invested in shares, it didn't work for me. So investing in shares is no good. Whereas really what we should be thinking about is not the asset class, is the methodology we used. And instead of concluding shares are no good or properties no good or whatever, it's really the methodology that was utilized by that individual was the thing that was broken, mm. not the actual asset class. But look, some of us just have to learn through experience. So, I mean, we hope that's not the case because <laughs> it's an expensive and painful process. But the reality is that that's how I learned. I mean, I learned through experience. So in my younger years, I've made plenty of financial mistakes. Mm. And I know we're going to sort of talk about the rules of the investing game and so forth, but I think it's easy to avoid mistakes if you can follow those sort of simple fundamental rules and not get sucked into the sort of short-term noise, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So to get started, what are some of the different ways that young people can build wealth over the long term? Well, I think, um, and and I'm probably going to say this quite a lot over the next uh, little while, <laughs> but playing the long game is probably the most important thing that younger people need to focus on. And it's ironic that typically when we're younger, we tend to want to chase short-term profits, build wealth quickly, take some shortcuts, be a millionaire overnight and retire at age 30. You know, these sorts of things sound very attractive. When we're older, typically we're ironically taking or we've learned to take a much longer-term view and be a little bit more patient in terms of investments and returns. And really, it should be the other way around. I mean, if I'm in my 70s, how much longer term view do I really want to take? I mean, surely it'd be just in, enjoy the next day as, the, as it comes, not, not to say that 70s 
at the end of a, a life, but you know, you're, you're closer to the end of the beginning, of course. Mm. But the problem is what happens almost always. I mean, there, there's a very slim probability of success if you focus on the short-term outcome, but what almost happens is you waste 10 years trying to chase short-term returns, mm. get none, start working out you need to start chasing longer-term returns and play that longer game. And then that's, you know, that's when it starts to turn around and people start to build wealth. I've, you know, 18 years, never seen someone consistently implement sort of shorter term strategies consistently well that helps them build wealth. It never works. Mm. And unfortunately, what you end up doing is just wasting time. So the first question, really the, the best question you can ponder is what can you do today so that in 10 or 15 years time, you're in a substantially better financial position? And if you just focus on that timeline, I mean, it's not necessarily you have to wait 10 or 15 years to see or enjoy the returns, but it's really by forcing yourself to take that longer term view, it's going to promote you to make quality, fundamentally sound financial decisions. Whereas if you flip it around and say, what can I do today? So in 12 months time, I'm much better off. What they'll invite you to do is make very short term decisions. And Howard Schultz, who wrote the book, uh, Pour Your Heart Into It, he started the Starbucks business empire. One of my favorite quotes from him is that short-term profit doesn't drive long-term value. And so if all you're doing is chasing short-term profit, you will never generate long-term value. And that's applicable both in business and in, in wealth accumulation. So taking that longer-term view is, is critical. And then I think there's probably two other elements that, or two other questions that you kind of need to contemplate if you're younger, because if you can get the right answer to these questions, you're well on the way to having a successful investment experience. The first one is gearing, you know, borrowing to invest when you're younger, as long as you're obviously doing it safely and you've considered the risks and so forth. But if, if you're in a position where you've got an appetite and ability to borrow money to invest, and so long as you're investing in something that is sound quality, of course, it's a very powerful strategy because it allow you to benefit from the compounding benefits of returns. So gearing is one element. You know, how do I or what do I invest in that allows me to borrow is a critical, fundamentally, just a basic mathematical question because it allows me to invest more sooner. And if I, as I said, if I'm investing in sound assets, that's going to have some pretty strong compounding benefits. And the second thing to contemplate is if I invest in an asset Quite often people focus on what are the expected returns of that investment, but really the of equal importance is what is the components of returns. So how much income and how much capital growth? Because if I'm young and I'm earning, I'm paying tax and I'm working and so forth, I don't really want more income. Mm. If I'm young, I've probably got a very low asset base. My strategy needs to be twofold. It needs to be first build my asset base and then secondly, tilt towards income. If you start investing for income from day one, it's a very ineffective strategy because you end up paying more tax. Mm. Obviously, you have to pay tax on income every year, but you don't pay tax on capital gains until you sell the asset. So it allows you to kind of defer the tax each year and reinvest those returns. So if I'm younger, I want to be investing in assets that give me predominantly capital growth rather than income in returns. And even if you compare then two asset class or two assets with identical, you know, if it both give me 10% returns, but one gives me only 2% income and 8% growth versus another that gives me 8% income and 2% growth, 
that second one, the one that's higher income, is going to retard my ability to be really effective in building wealth because I'll be paying tax on that 8% every year. So I only get 4% to reinvest. Whereas if I've only got 2% income, I'm only paying tax on that very small amount of return. So it's really play the long game, consider how do I include gearing in my strategy, and then how do I invest in assets that are going to provide me predominantly with capital growth rather than income. Mm, And I think that comes down to actually investing differently to the way our parents and grandparents have done it because they've been focused a lot on that income for retirement, but that's not something you really need to think about as a 20 and 30-year-old. It's like, uh, you know, use a golfy analogy um, for anyone that plays golf or has any knowledge of it. It's, uh, I, mean, I don't play it anymore, but it's like teeing off with a putter. You'll get to the green. It'll take you many, many strokes. You know, you're never going to win a game and it's a lot of hard work. Whereas most people realize that you tee off with a driver because that's a shot that's going to get you closer to the green as fast as possible or within as fewer shots. And then when you're close to the, or when you're on the green, you use the putter to complete the hole. The same with investing. You know, if you just go for income, it'll work. It may work, I should say, (laughs) but it's a long way and and painful way to get there. Mm. What you really need is the driver and that's the compound nature of compounding capital growth. And great juncture to sort of mention that Vanguard puts a index chart together every year. They sort of update it to try and, I guess, promote the theme of long-term investing. And, you know, if you had have invested in the ASX index X years ago, this is what the returns would be. Mm. In this year's sort of promotion, they included a an example of someone investing $500 a month in the Australian uh, share index beginning at 1990. And I, I get that that's 30 years ago, but if you had have invested $500 a month over that 30-year period, you'd have $780,000 today. Mm. So over that period, you've invested 180000 of capital but it's grown to $780,000. Now, again, for a younger person, they go, well, I'm not going to wait 30 years for those results. And I get that. You don't necessarily need to either. But what it's demonstrating is that if you adopt a fundamentally sound methodology, which is kind of indexing, that's low cost, and you do it consistently, so you invest in a consistent amount over long periods of time, it can generate substantial wealth. Mm. And I think it's a really powerful example. Yeah, I really enjoy having a look at those charts and often refer people to them just to actually see the impact of investing over the long term. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to have that much luck involved. It If it's just sort of discipline, learn a basic strategy and go for it. And I think that leads me to my next question, which I wanted to pose to you. I've been thinking a bit about it over the last few years, but to what extent do you think do luck and chance have in building wealth? Because the more I've learned about it, it's a little bit skill, but it's mostly that discipline and patience and just picking a strategy that works for you and going for that. And But I think a lot of people from the outside think that you have to be really lucky to do well when investing. Mm-hmm. Look, I think if we break it up into good luck and bad luck, <laughs> so bad luck would be I made an investment, it didn't work out. I think almost every single financial mistake is predictable from the outset. So I don't think you can lose money in an investment is as a result of bad luck. I think most people, or if not every single person on earth, (laughs) loses money on making investment because it was fundamentally unsound. It was never going to work from the beginning. Mm. And anyone with any decent level of experience and complete independence probably would have been in the position to be able to tell you that. So I think bad luck doesn't really exist. 
it's just mistakes. <laughs> but good luck. Good luck can occur when you make an investment that you're not necessarily chasing uh, much higher returns. You know, you're quite happy, I'll buy this investment property and if it grows at 6 or 7 8% per annum over the long term on average, I'm happy. But you can just luck it and buy it at the right time just before the market ticks up. So still you're chasing those longer term returns, but you just get the timing right. And so timing can be good luck. And so that can kind of snowball your returns. But so then the the temptation is to try and chase those lucky returns. But if you try and do that, that's a mistake. And so then that kind of leads back to, well, then if it doesn't work out, I would say to you, well, that was a predictable mistake because you had too much, too short a term, too short a focus on too short a term. Yeah. So I, I think you can almost erase luck as a necessary component to be successful in in investing. I don't think there's any luck involved. As I said, you might randomly get some good luck, but <laughs> certainly uh, you don't need it in order to build wealth. Mm, and it's interesting because sometimes uh, you might invest in a individual share and it, for some reason there's no sort of rhyme or reason behind it, but it just goes up by 100%. And then maybe you th- start thinking you had some skill in picking that share mm. over just the luck that happened. You know, the the benefit of employing evidence-based strategies, and that's what I do, you know, I only employ an investment methodology where there's overwhelming evidence that it's repeatable and that it will produce the desired outcomes. And by doing that, I think you reduce your investment risk because you're not throwing darts at a dartboard. What you're saying is if I do things in this way, I will achieve the same sort of outcomes. Much like, I guess, going to the gym and having a training program or a diet you know that if you you know reduce your calorie intake and increase your energy burning, you, you're going to lose weight. That's a fundamentally sound like evidence based approach. And so you know if you if you then sort of apply it to the share market and say, well, I bought Afterpay at eight dollars and I sold it at seventy, that's a great outcome. It is a great outcome, and that's some random good luck. But is it a repeatable strategy? Mm-hmm. And can you do it consistently well that you'll never lose money? So every time you invest in a stock, you make those sorts of returns. The answer is that there's no evidence that anyone in the world is able to do that consistently well that will then allow them over the long term to beat the share market. It just doesn't happen. Mm. And even the experts, not every stock they buy is going to go up by hundreds of percent. Some of them will actually lose the money. It's it's not they uh, they don't get lucky and pick the right stock every time. No, and and you know the stats around. I mean, S and P put the Spiva report together each year that looks at active versus passive managers and uh, somewhere between every year, 70 to 80% of active managers fail to beat the index. So which means that of all those professional managers, the vast minority actually doing well and they're, they're studying the market 40 to 80 hours a week. So us as individuals, how it's like you're playing poker with the world champion to some degree. And you're not a, a world champion poker player because, you know, in, in a market, there's a buyer and seller. So the other person that is either buying or selling that's on the other end of the transaction, if they're a professional, I'm betting myself against them that I'm going to win. It's just a, it's a loser's game, really. And then when you look at the persistence of our performance, even the fund managers that do outperform over the next 12 months, they're very unlikely to outperform over the following 12 months and then certainly not three years in a row it's something like less than 10% will remain in that top quartile three years later. So the, the persistence of outperformance just isn't there. All the stats, there's an overwhelming body of evidence that demonstrates doing that sort of stock picking approach as opposed to indexing just doesn't work. So 
it's up to the individual then. Do you want to take the risk? Mm. It's a little bit like going to the races and saying, well, I'll have a punt on the horses. I mean, yeah, good luck. <laughs> I don't even know if the horses know it's a race, but, you know, good luck in trying to pick a winner. But I think we all know that most people lose money on gambling than win win it mm. in the main. So Yeah. So when I when I came across you a few years ago, it was after reading uh, one of your earlier books, Investopoly, you sort of made the correlation between the game of Monopoly and investing and talked a little bit about learning the rules of the investing game. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit further about how do you actually start learning these rules and what are they? Yeah, so it's um it's a difficult question. I guess the um the analogy really around Monopoly was that we all learn how to play Monopoly when we're younger and we typically play it with our parents. Mm. And I know I don't like to let my sons win if I'm playing Monopoly. <laughs> They've learned the hard way. But you know, you know you you need to do a few things, you know, you can't exhaust your own cash. You've got to buy property as soon as possible. You've got to try and get a set and and, and then sort of dominate from there and and squeeze every player out. You know, there's a certain sort of methodology to winning the game of Monopoly. Mm-hmm. And the same applies then to investing. There's certain rules that you need to employ in order to win at the game of building wealth. And so how do you know what is the rules and what's not a rule? And I think that's what your question really invited me to think about. And I think it's really about the difference between a fundamentally sound principle versus a trend or what's popular. Mm. Because tech stocks, for example, is a really interesting kind of theme or thematic in the stock market at the moment. And certainly if you've been overweight or been investing in tech stocks, you know, you would have done incredibly well over the last uh, 10 years. Yeah. But is that a rule of the game? Is it, you know, is that finding a, a sector that has tremendous scale that's going to play a, a key role in in commerce and the economy for the, several decades to come? Or is that just a theme? You know, is it a, a theme of the day, something that's popular? And th- there's always themes, right? And and the media will talk about them like they're permanent fixtures, you know, that mm-hmm. this is the way to invest now. So, mm. so it does then make it really difficult, I guess, for people with less experience to really work out what's the noise, what's all popular. And, you know, what is fundamentally sound? And I guess the fundamentally, what makes a rule of the game or a fundamentally sound principle is typically based on simple math. You know, it's just a principle based on simple math. And I think there's nothing really complex about investing that can't be explained simply. And it really is just uh, rooted in kind of sound logic. So, you know, one of the rules is play the long game. And that just makes sense because if we're all just trying to chase short-term profit, it doesn't necessarily translate to long-term value. Mm. But if we go, if we had have invested in the ASX index over the last 30 years, you know, our investment would be worth nearly a million dollars. That that's a makes sense, right? The evidence shows that if I play the long game, if I have some patience, that's going to lead to better, better quality decisions. Manage cash flow wisely, spread your eggs amongst many different baskets. So that's really asset allocation. You know, when buying property, buy something that is in very short supply, but excessive, always benefit from sustained excessive demand. Supply and demand is just a, a simple calculation. You know, investing in borrowing to invest when you're younger and investing in assets that provide most of their return in capital growth rather than income. Again, that's just simple maths. We know, we can see, we pay too much tax if we get too much of our return in income. So it's, it's understanding what is a fundamentally sound rule and trying to, as much as we can, block out all the noise of the day that what's popular and 
I think it was Buffett that said, you know, the market is a voting machine in the short run and a, a weighing machine in the long run. Mm-hmm. Popularity drives markets in the short run. What's fundamentally sound drives markets in the longer run. And probably the best example of that in the future and people that might be listening to this in a few years' time <laughs> can hold me to it, but maybe the a really good example of that is the tech sector. Let's see what it does over the next five or 10 years because at the moment it's very popular and it's benefiting from that popularity, but that's not always backed up by fundamentals. In fact, it's rarely backed up by fundamentals. These businesses aren't making money. They're burning through cash. Every time they need to grow, they need to access more capital. It's not a sustainable business model. So in the long run, the market should, their prices should reflect that, uh, which means that these stocks will fall in value significantly. Uh, Time will tell whether that's the case. I I suspect it will be. So (laughs) it's about understanding those rules, I think, and and really um, not trying to do what's popular. And quite often the best investment is unpopular at the time, Mm. but that's okay. Yeah, and I think so often these rules get completely hidden from sort of the media because they're pretty boring. It's not really interesting to do a story every day on investing for 30 years. It's interesting to do a story on this stock went up 50% today. And so you often only see one side of things. You only see the trending and you don't see the sort of fundamental rules of investing in the media. There's um, two things, two primary emotions are never very helpful when it comes to investing. But the two primary emotions are fear and greed. Mm. Fear will stop us from making any investment, you know, just sitting on our hands and not knowing what to do for fear of making a mistake. And greed is just all about, you know, how do I get the highest return for lowest risk? Or quite often, people won't even consider the component of risk and just look at the return. Mm. And both those emotions, we need to understand that both those emotions are at play. And sometimes even subconsciously, so then it makes it difficult to really identify them. But I think if we acknowledge that we're susceptible to letting fear and greed drive our decisions, if we become aware of that, then we can try and mitigate it. And that's one of the things that just abiding by a set of investment rules allows you to do. It gives you a, a very clear recipe on how to react to different situations. So if the market crashes, what do you do? Do you sell out because you think the world's ending? because the papers are saying, look, the pandemic's going to be here forever and the world has changed, or do you stay the course? And if you have a set of rules that tell you what to do in these sorts of situations, these fundamentally sound principles, it's much easier then to avoid having to make decisions or or having your decisions coerced by your emotions, particularly fear and greed. Mm, And one of the ways you can manage your emotions a bit better is working out what your risk profile and your tolerance towards volatility is and actually investing in line with that, with that. So you, if you can't deal with massive swings in the market, you don't go for a high risk profile where you might have to see your money go up and down on a really roller coaster ride. And I thought that'd be interesting for you to talk about a bit about further as a financial advisor, and you've probably seen clients of all sorts of hmm. walks of life and different risk profiles, a little bit more about how one could sort of start to understand their own risk profile, because you're obviously very biased looking at yourself. And and your own personal tolerance towards volatility as well. Yeah, I mean, risk profiles are a really interesting one. (laughs) Do people have different risk profiles? I mean, who has an appetite to lose $100,000, for example? (laughs) I don't think anyone really does. Mm. And look, a lot of people will overestimate their tolerance of risk until it really occurs, you know, not until you really understand if the market drops 30%, did you really have that tolerance for risk? Because if you're going to invest in 
the share market has a volatility rate of 20% and an average return of 10%. So that means that your return can typically be anywhere, or you should expect your return to typically be anywhere between negative 10 and positive 30. That's a big range. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you can't stomach that range, then you've picked the wrong asset class. The other thing too is I think uh, time horizon informs us of our risk. Because if we're investing in in super, for example, and we're young, we know, well, we're not going to access it for 30 or 40 years. You know, we've got a very long time horizon. We can probably turn a blind eye to volatility in the market and just go, well, I don't really care. I don't need the money for 30 or 40 years. Mm. Whereas if we're saving for a deposit for a house and we're hoping to buy that house as soon as possible, I'd argue then tolerance for risk is very, very low because Mm. it's hard to save money. And you don't want to lose any of that capital because then you're going to have to spend another six months resaving to make up that money that you lost. Yeah. So I think time horizon really informs us mostly of our risk and the risk appetite. But I I would probably say that certainly people out there that don't have uh, much tolerance for risk, but in the main, I would say 90% of people have a very similar risk profile. Mm. If we're aiming for long term, most people are happy to wear the volatility But if we need the money in the shorter term, most people just don't have the tolerance for risk. And that just makes sense, right? Why would you risk, you know, if you're contemplating purchasing a property in 12 months, why would you risk losing any of that money? What's more important? Is it a 10% gain or is it retaining all your savings? I think when people sit down, people will go, well, 10% is not going to change my life, Mm. but losing my savings will. Yeah. And so I think most people, when they sit down and someone will step it through them, this is the upside and this is the downside. Most people are going to say, look, I don't have an appetite for risk in this situation. So I think it's about time horizon mm. mostly. And, and I also think that most people don't really have that bigger difference in tolerance for risk. Because mm, often if you look at super funds, the difference between a balanced and a growth fund is actually really small over the long term and the returns really aren't that different. Yeah. And well, I mean, don't get me started on the <laughs> industry fund mixed investment yeah. options because comparing growth and balanced in seven different funds, you're comparing probably seven different asset allocations. Mm. So none of them are really comparable. And and particularly, some of them will only have, you know, 40% in shares and, and the rest in kind of what they call alternative assets, which no one really knows much about. <laughs> but you're right, there isn't necessarily a, a massive difference. I think most of that is because because of the asset allocation. Plus, also, when you look at past returns, you know, the last 30 years, there's been times when bonds have given us double digit returns just because of changes in interest rates will then change value of bonds. Mm. So the bond market has driven a lot of the returns, but you just can't, I never say never, but you just can't see a way how it will do that in the next 30 years, given the risk is we'll be stuck in a really low interest rate environment for a long period of time. Mm. And so I think then if you think about sort of a a 30-70 split, so 70% in shares, 30% in bonds, which might be sort of akin to a balanced profile. Over the last 30 years, the returns have probably been okay and relatively commensurate with 100% in shares, but I don't think that'll be the case moving forward. So I think it really is that time horizon case that if you mm. if you are young and you're investing in your super, taking an aggressive asset allocation, you know, assume you've got the right fund and mm. low fees and et cetera, et cetera, But taking an aggressive asset allocation is a completely reasonable thing to do and you shouldn't watch your super, you shouldn't worry about it. Just keep contributing and uh, again, if it's invested well, 
you'll generate those compounding benefits, substantial compounding benefits. Mm, Absolutely. And I know this question can be asked at pretty much any point in time while investing, but what are some of the risks and opportunities with investing right now in the current environment? Because I've had quite a few listeners ask whether they hold off or invest now or dollar cost average. And I mean, we get these questions at any point along the spectrum. I mean, in March and back in 18 and 17, and I'm sure every financial advisor has been asked this question on a daily basis for their whole career. But I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit more about right now. Look, I think there's always risks in any time that we invest. Mm. In 18 years, I don't think there's ever been a time when now has been the best time to invest. Mm. So, you know, if you're waiting for the stars to align and and all the risks to disappear, you're probably going to be disappointed. (laughs) Over that period of time, of all the articles that are written about the property market, for example, I have read one, possibly two, I think it's two, that are positive, that actually said, now's actually a pretty good time to invest in the property market. Now, we know over the last 20 years, there's been some really good times to invest. I mean, some Mm. people have made some decent returns out of the property market. So most of the noise is always going to be negative. But the reality is there is always risks. And, you know, that creates opportunities as well, because if everything was safe and sound, everything would be, I guess, uh, rationally priced. And that reduces ability, I guess, generate returns. The risks at this in this market is to think that things have changed substantially. Mm. I mean, when people tell me that things have changed permanently, I'm very skeptical because things very, very rarely do. Mm. Things will change. I mean, changes will be accelerated, I guess, as a result of COVID. So pe- more people will probably adopt a more of a hybrid kind of work from home model where they might work from home one or two days a week. But to say that, you know, we'll be permanently working from home in the main, in the long run, is just a complete nonsense, Mm. in my view. I remember when the GFC was happening and I was glued to the TV for a couple of years, (laughs) they were saying when the GFC hit and the market dropped, they were saying, that's it, business has changed, the way we're going to do business around the world has changed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, nothing nothing changed. Mm. Nothing changed almost at all as a result of the GFC. So it very rarely changes, so don't be sucked into altering your investment strategy because you think COVID has changed any significant outcomes and then stick to the tried and tested principles, you know, stick to the Mm. strategies that are going to work. And the common theme in all the share market studies, for instance, is diversification, is not having any concentration risk in any geographical market, in any particular sector, and certainly in any particular stock. That's the common theme amongst, you know, almost every single kind of share market analysis or report or paper I've read in 18 years. Mm. So employ those strategies and then try and tilt away, tilt your portfolio away from the risky parts of the market. So certainly in our portfolios were well underweight technology in the US, but we're overweight technology in Asia because they're trading at different multiples. Mm. And I think, for example, the UK market and emerging markets are really well priced at the moment in terms of valuations. And a prime to give, you know, kind of future expected returns of nine-ish percent over the next 10 years on average based on sort of CAPE ratios and these sorts of things. So again, don't take any big bets. I'm not just saying put all your money in the UK and emerging markets, but tilting portfolios away from risky parts towards uh, less risky parts of the market are are typically the best way to, to do it. But diversification is the key and low cost indexing is a great way to do that. Mm. So it's sort of regardless of what's going on, those long-term 
and long-term strategies and principles stay in place because it's usually the human behaviour and emotions that's changing. It's not the fundamental part of investing. Yeah, spot on. We need to have the discipline to retain a really well-diversified asset allocation. So you might go, oh, US market's overvalued. Really? Not everything in the US is overvalued and not everything, every stock in the US is going to give us terrible returns over the next 10 years. Certainly, there's some sectors and some businesses, healthcare and technology, as I've mentioned, are are certainly trading at at lofty valuations. But we we could be wrong. Five years ago, I thought, well, the US market's given us 10% returns. How long will it persist for? Well, we've had another five (laughs) since then. Mm. So you could be wrong. So you can't make massive bets. And we know making big bets on asset allocation just doesn't work. There's enough evidence to demonstrate that. So still have the discipline to stick to that very long-term asset allocation as if no one really knows what's going to happen. But then just tilting within your portfolio to make sure that you're accommodating the risks and opportunities in the market. So you're taking kind of smaller bets, if you like, by tilting away, but at least you're managing the overall risk of the portfolio to avoid those more risky sectors, but also then exposing the portfolio to potentially higher returns as well. Mm, Absolutely, Stuart. And to finish up, I was wondering if you could share your number one piece of advice for new investors. Try to avoid making short-term profit. So it sounds really weird, right? But I think the best thing to try and do when investing is try to not make too much money over the next one or two years. Mm. And the reason I say that is because it will force you because it sounds weird, mm. but then it's kind of easier to do to some degree than say focus on long term, because mm. that's sometimes quite difficult to do. It's difficult to make those mental leaps of decades, but it's it's much easier to think about what's going to happen in six months than say six years. So then let's reverse it and go, okay, just don't try to avoid making a lot of money in the next one or two years. And the UK market might be a really good example for this, right? So you've got Very similar businesses, say pharmaceutical businesses, for example, Johnson & Johnson and Glasgow SmithKline. Glasgow SmithKline is listed on the the UK index and Johnson & Johnson obviously on in the US market. They're both trading at significantly different multiples, but they're both global businesses. They're both very comparable businesses, just trading at different exchanges, right? So you've got a potential opportunity there in the UK market where valuations are below trend that look like very attractive. But who knows when the UK market's really going to turn around. It's probably not going to be in the next 12 months. No one really knows, but it's probably not. They've got Brexit to negotiate, navigate through. They've got the return of the virus more lately. These sorts of kind of headwinds to battle against. But in the next five years, I would be really confident to say that that market will probably deliver above average returns. Hmm. So that's a really good example of how to invest today to avoid making any short-term profit Mm. because you wouldn't be, most people wouldn't be that optimistic about the returns over the next 12 months. That market is so volatile at the moment. And as I said, there are a lot of uncertainties. And when there's a lot of uncertainties, markets just can't move forward. But that would be my number one advice. Try not to make money. Invest in a way that you kind of avoid making a lot of money in the next one to two years. That'll force you to take a long-term view. That'll then force you to focus on the sound fundamentals. And uh, as a result, that's likely to produce good quality decisions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stuart, for sharing everything today. And I think there's plenty for people to get their teeth sunk into and go through. If people want to learn a little bit more about you and your books, where should they go? My business is called Pro Solutions, so P-R-O solution or one word, no S on the end, .com.au. 
I write a weekly blog that is also a, a podcast. The podcast is called Investopoly. And so I would say uh, join the list on the, the blog or, and or podcast. And that's the best way to sort of stay in contact and learn a little bit more about what I do and what I think and what's going on in the marketplace and all those sorts of things. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts today. Thanks a lot, Kate. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.